For the week of March 6th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Hello, welcome, thanks again for joining us this week. And I'm joined by who else but my energy geek friends and co-hosts. Also in our fair capital city is Catherine Hamilton, a policy wonk and partner with 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how are you this week? Give me a highlight. Uh, just recovering from that great hangover that's the Oscars. You know, when Ellen took that selfie with all those stars, she broke the record for the most retweets of all time. And I was thinking... I want to set up a challenge. Maybe we need to bring the energy gang together for a selfie and see if we can break that record. You think we can do it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we have to like travoltaize our names so that they're all something like Adele Dazim. <laughs> all right. We'll have to come up with that for the next show. And in San Francisco, in a lobby somewhere, is Jigger Shaw, a man of many talents, including clean tech investing and freely speaking his mind. Jigger, how are things on the West Coast? I assume you're over there because you were signing books at the Oscars? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I have to say that I thought that selfie was a little selfish. I mean, I bet you those movie stars probably had 70 million Twitter follows amongst them. Well, this is the me generation, so selfies are the name of the game, no matter who you are. So, as you may have guessed, yet again we have solar on the brain. And we are going to talk with Roan Resch, the president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association, about the 2013 Solar Market Insight Report. We're going to dig into some of those numbers. Uh, Catherine and I sat down and talked with Roan earlier this week about what he saw happening in the solar market, and we'll air that conversation. Then we're going to discuss O-Power's planned IPO and take a look at what has made the company a powerhouse in energy efficiency. And in our third segment... We are talking House of Cards. Episode 6 of Season 2 prominently featured a storyline on the energy crisis. We are going to try not to spoil the episode for you, but we're going to use it to talk about whether any of it is based in reality. Finally, we'll close out the show by telling you something you may not know. Okay, on to our interview with Roan Resch. Catherine and I sat down with Roan and asked him about the numbers coming out of the U.S. solar market. Last year was another record year with more than 4.7 gigawatts of PV installations, more than historical world leader Germany, and second to natural gas development. We asked Roan what his best storylines of the year are. You know, I think there's a couple of different storylines that really jump out from, from the report. I think the first one, and again, just to put in context what you know, 5.2 gigawatts of total solar means uh, in the United States, uh, is that this year, in 2013, more solar... Um, was installed over the last 18 months than we had installed in the previous 30 years. So you've really seen a significant ramp up, uh, not just in this last year, but you know, over the last couple of years, so that we're, we're more than doubling the amount of installed capacity uh, literally every year. And when you look at, um, broadly speaking, the context of, of, of what is 5.2 gigawatts mean compared to other new sources, solar accounted for 29% of all new electricity generation capacity in 2013. Now that's up from 10% uh, 
in, in 2012. And so, you know, you're really seeing solar being a very competitive uh, technology with natural gas, uh, certainly beating uh, uh, new coal and, and, and uh, if there is such a thing as new nukes, um, but uh, as well as uh, beating some of the other renewable technologies. So, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that is driven ultimately by, I think, probably the biggest storyline in, in, uh, in the document, which is the uh, decline in prices. Uh, install cost of solar. And, you know, we saw the weighted average PV system price fall by 15% in 2013, reaching a new low of $2.59 per watt on average in the fourth quarter. And and what's interesting about that number is um, that occurred during a year when you actually saw an uptick in panel prices due in part to the 2011 uh, trade case uh, that took place. So, you know, all in all, I think this this study shows... um, a diversification in geography. More and more markets are opening up. The markets are getting larger. You're seeing some markets focus on utility scale. Other markets focus on residential and distributed generation. Uh, but all market segments are growing. Prices are coming down and jobs are being created. It's a very positive story. The solar market is really diversifying here in the U.S. And we've had a lot of states that have come up that have historically not been solar leaders. In the Midwest, in the Southeast, in the Mid-Atlantic region, beyond traditional leaders like California and New Jersey, what do you see happening there, and why is that so important to the overall boom in the solar market? Well, you see more states creating policies that are are uh, effectively creating markets, either utility-scale markets uh, or distributed generation markets. Uh, you know, the fastest-growing state in the country today is Georgia. They're, they're now number seven. Um, and granted, most of that is done uh, through direct uh, procurement by the utility, uh, but it's done on a cost basis, meaning that solar needed to be competitive uh, from a price perspective, and it is. And so Georgia Power is finding that they can add solar to their mix um, and keep uh, uh, not add any additional cost to the ratepayers. In fact, save ratepayers money. Uh, but then you look at some of the other states that have really um, expanded this last year. Massachusetts, which did 237 megawatts, um, you know, obviously a small state, but number four on our list. And in fact, leapfrogged over New Jersey uh, this last year. And um, and you're seeing kind of the, the market continue to grow in, in New Jersey uh, based, excuse me, in, in Massachusetts on a couple of different, you know, reasons. Uh, they've got a new SREC program, SREC 2, uh, which is now in place. Uh, we saw a big ramp up in the fourth quarter uh, in Massachusetts, uh, trying to take advantage of the first program. Uh, and now you have bills that are introduced to raise the net metering cap, uh, cap and, and create uh, kind of a review process uh, by the Utility Commission. Uh, ultimately, what uh, Massachusetts is doing is putting in place a structure that is going to create a sustainable uh, market that will continue to grow going forward. And, and that's something that I, I think is also um, reflected in, in uh, kind of a sleeper state, which we're going to see grow a lot in 2014, uh, which is New York. And, um, you know, Governor Cuomo has done a, a great job in really you know, leading policy initiatives for through the administration, including the expansion of the New York Sun program, which is going to put in place three gigawatts over the next 10 years. Again, just to put that in perspective, that's the same size goal that you saw out of California uh, seven years ago. So, um, you know, a, a really strong leadership position by uh, Governor Cuomo. You know, kind of looking forward to 2014, I think you're going to see a state like New York, which is number nine this year, uh, uh, jump up into the top five. And, and so a lot of opportunity to, to look beyond just California and New Jersey in 2014. 
So, Rona, I have a question for you. It seems that so much of this hinges on public policy and state leadership, whether it's at the commission, public utility commission level or the legislature or you know, the mayors and governors are all putting in smart policy that are going to incentivize solar. Do you see any of this translating into members of Congress. So do you see in states like Georgia that are, you know, getting a lot more solar, do you see that transferring into their congressional delegation, which is, you know, heavily Republican and having those guys take on the mantle of solar energy? You know, it's a great question, Catherine. We find that there tends to be a lag time between when the market grows in the state and when you start to see congressional support. Um, we've had a lot of great meetings with the Georgia delegation, and and they are excited about the growth, but really haven't stepped forward to provide uh, any significant leadership um, with respect to to legislation that might be moving forward on either tax or, or energy or climate policy. Uh, but I think that's also incumbent upon the industry to become a little bit more activist, uh, meaning specifically, let's get the Georgia companies to sit down with the delegation in state give them tours of their facilities, show them the factories that exist within the state, and really do a comprehensive education uh, you know, of their elected officials about what the solar industry contributes to, to the economy of the state of Georgia. Uh, and so we're working with, with uh, Jasia and, and a lot of the individual companies to have those meetings. They're going to be coming up to Washington and, and sitting down with the delegation uh, and spending more time really as, as uh, corporate activists, if, if, if you will, making sure that their elected officials know what's going on in the state. But to answer your question, it does take a little bit of time. And, and uh, you know, there's no doubt that the, the leadership that we see um, most in Congress come from those states in which uh, we've had strong solar markets, California. New Jersey, uh, Arizona, Colorado, and, and the rest. So staying on this theme, then, the big issue that you're dealing with is tax policy and what Congress is going to do on tax policy. How are you staking out a position on the ITC? So in the, the president's recent budget, he proposed ending the ITC at the end of 2016, as usual, and then moving the solar, moving the solar industry into the production tax credit. And you said that's the wrong move at the wrong time. How are you positioning yourself here? How are you working with members of Congress and the White House? And, and, and what do you think is going to happen on this ITC front? You know, the, we, we don't think that the conversion of the ITC to, the, to a PTC is going to happen uh, anytime soon. Uh, there's advantages to a production tax credit if it's designed properly. But certainly what the administration has put forward is just a proposal to try to get all renewables um, into, into one similar policy framework. Uh, and clearly that doesn't work. You know, the, 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 unlike the wind industry, a big por- portion of our market is distributed generation. And so a production tax credit becomes uh, functionally um, uh, difficult to, to administer when you're talking about rooftop solar. Part of what we're trying to do is to make sure that that tax credit works as effectively as possible through the end of 2016 and beyond. And so one of the changes that we're proposing uh, to the ITC is to allow for commence construction language to be included, which means simply that you qualify to utilize the tax credit if you have at least begun construction by the end of 2016, rather than have come online by the end of 2016. And, and to go back to Catherine's question, this is, you know, we, we've been pushing forward with this and, and actually have very good support 
uh, from both Republicans and Democrats. In fact, in the House, we have we have two bills that have been introduced, uh, one with 100 co-sponsors um, uh, and another that's a pure Republican bill, but it's it's got the support of people from California, Arizona, and other states. And, and, and so you're seeing kind of bipartisan support for this, this concept of business certainty. And, and certainly in the Senate, you see the same thing. We had uh, uh, a bill, S-2003, uh, introduced by Senators uh, uh, Bennett from Colorado and Dean Heller from Nevada, a Republican. All right. So on the state level, you're dealing with uh, some political organizations that are attempting to roll back net metering policies uh, in partnership with some utilities. You have them working on watering down renewable portfolio standards. You have this China trade case. You have tax policy in Congress. And when you look at all this stuff, I'm wondering how aggressive you think the industry needs to be. So SIA walks this fine line between being aggressive and f- attempting to forge alliances and not step on toes of, say, a utility that's a potential ally. How do you strike that balance? Like, what are your thoughts on on maybe other groups, too, working within the solar industry that are hitting back politically? And where does SIA fall in its strategy? Again, it's a great question. And one of the, the challenges I think any trade association faces is that you have a variety of different opinions within your membership. And it's important to air those opinions, but also to to drive a consensus position and then to advocate and implement that position. And, and that's what we've done on net metering. We had a lot of different opinions, uh, but we, we put forward a policy position platform that um, uh, that we adopted as an organization, and we're now implementing state by state. And, and our strategy at the state level um, is one in which uh, we are very focused on the legal and the regulatory process, meaning we're going to participate uh, in rate cases, we're going to participate in uh, public utility commission hearings and, and open dockets uh, and submit our analysis and research and, and comments and, and go through kind of that legal structure. Um, what we have avoided doing is is spending a lot of time, um, uh, you know, just just throwing um, ideas or or comments uh, into the mix that um, would instigate, let's just say, a reaction from from utilities or for others. Uh, we we are very committed to the fact that uh, that actions speak. Uh, much louder than words. And, and so the process that we take internally is to drive consensus and then implement it uh, through a regulatory proceeding. I think it's a very important role for others to play to, to, uh, to be you know, shedding light as to some of the actions that utilities uh, have made on net metering, some of their comments, uh, and ultimately to um, uh, help encourage them to come to the table to, to negotiate a settlement. Uh, but I think, you know, SIA's perspective really is to provide leadership for the industry, to anticipate these issues, to develop industry positions, to implement them, uh, to be aggressive uh, when it's important to, to do so, but ultimately to, to be at the table uh, when the deal is being negotiated. Because if you've isolated yourself in the conversation and, and you're not invited to the table because you've upset the administration, Congress, the public utility commissioners, or whomever, then then you know you, you've decreased your f- effectiveness. Uh, and, and our goal here is to really 
implement our positions as effectively as possible. Yeah, Ron, I know you can't back off of the net metering fights in a lot of the states where, uh, you know, where those have been reared, uh, where there's been a lot of contention. But I see that we're going to have some interesting new kinds of constructs that are going to eventually either supplant or somehow change net metering to, to include a lot of other technologies. I know Iowa just had a docket on distributed generation and I filed for the Energy Storage Association. And, you know, they're asking, so if we design this from scratch, what should it look like? And I think we're going to we're going to see some pretty creative ideas out there that will get us out of a one size fits all bind. I agree with you 100 percent, you know, Catherine. I think where this needs to go is is beyond um, the conversation about net metering caps and is it three percent or four percent and and ultimately into um, you know into rate design structures and uh, mechanisms that create sustainable markets for distributed generation and because as you pointed out the technology is evolving very very rapidly uh, solar happens to be in the crosshairs for some of the utilities at the moment because uh, it, it's scaling up so rapidly but there are there are literally dozens of other technologies that are starting to become commercially available including storage and, and uh, even natural gas distributed generation um, that are cost effective that are going to be part of the energy mix going forward so you know utilities I, I think are, are um, beat up pretty badly right now on distributed generation, and they're realizing that you can't win this battle state by state, that there needs to be uh, a, a more productive conversation on rate design uh, as well as, as other kind of grid stabilization conversations that includes distributed generation. Um, and we're starting to see those occur. Well, Roan Resch, president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association, Thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Love to come back anytime. Thanks, Ron. All right, on to our second topic, and Jigger is back with us. After a lot of speculation and secrecy around its push to go public, the efficiency company Opower finally filed its S-1 with the SEC this week, looking for a $100 million IPO. The S-1 provides a wealth of interesting information about the state of the company and how it plans to expand. So what might we expect from Opower once it starts offering its shares to the public? Um, Jigger, did you read through the S-1? What did you take away from Opower's public filing and where it is as a company? Yeah, I thought the S1 was quite interesting. And and I think what's amazing about Opower is that, you know, they really cut their teeth with these smiley faces and frowny faces on people's bills to use sort of human behavior expertise to get people to use less energy. But they've really expanded from there. And now they're partnering with retail suppliers, as you've reported, um, and really talking about the revenue that they're going to be able to make from demand response and other program participation goals. And so that's where I think the real special sauce is for Opower is that utilities have been complaining for years that they can't actually get consumers to react to price signals or requests and that kind of stuff. And Opower has sort of proven to them that they were just doing it the wrong way and that Opower can do it better. Yeah, they're sort of a Trojan horse here. They now call themselves an enterprise customer engagement platform. And I should have provided a little bit of background for folks because some of our listeners are outside of the U.S. They may not have heard of Opower. This is a Virginia-based company that was formed in 2007, and it had a very simple offering, as Jigger mentioned. 
they crunched meter data from utilities and they sent out these customized paper messages with the smiley faces and the frowny faces through the power company, which simply compared a customer's usage to their neighbors. And it was based on very simple behavioral science that shows people respond to what their peers are doing. A very People have a competitive nature. And when they see their peers are doing better, they respond in kind. And they found that this consistently brought around 2 to 4% savings across a residential portfolio, and it caught on quickly with utilities. They've now got 93 customers, some, in, uh, some outside the U.S., and now they've got this software platform for residential demand response, for potential thermostat integration, and for interfacing with the utilities customers. So it's fascinating to see how this company has evolved. Uh, Catherine, what's your perception of how a company like Opower starts very simply and then expands to what it is today. Yeah, I love this company. I I've known Alex and Dan since they they used to be called Positive Energy. It's kind of a surfer name, and O Power is certainly a better name for them. My son even uh, decided to major in business and psychology because of of an internship he did at O Power, and and yet at the same time I was kind of thinking, hmm, you know, this seems pretty simple. It doesn't seem like huge amount of energy savings. How are they going to evolve? And watching them has been fascinating because what they do is they've been doing what they do best really, really well. And a lot of that is collecting data. So now they have all of this data. For 32 million consumers, they have data. And I think they are going to be, as you say, the Trojan horse. I think they're going to help the utilities uh, find kind of the next generation of utility because they have more information than anybody else does about consumers and how they react to a wide variety of stimuli, whether it's rates or, you know, distributed generation or whatever it might be. Um, they've, they've got their number. And I think it's, I think it's pretty fascinating watching them grow. Jigger, what about profitability here? So in the S1, O-Power show that its revenue has grown substantially. Last year, they made uh, around 88 0.7 million dollars. 90% of that revenue actually came from utility subscriptions, which is uh, a good thing if they can keep that uh, reoccurring revenue. Uh, but at the same time, they're not profitable. Does is that concerning for a company like this? Well, it's certainly it, it's certainly concerning to me because you know I think when a company goes public, generally that means that they've figured out their business model to the point where they're actually making money. Um, so I hope that they're make, they're planning on making money this year. But when you read the S1, it sort of warns us that they may not make money for some time in the future until they sort of stop growing because they think that they can grow to meet the needs of 1,300 utilities around the world. And so that that is concerning to me. I mean, I, I maybe I'm just old school, but I think that companies – um, you know, should try to make a profit. Yeah. In talking to some VCs about this, they seem to think that growing unprofitably is okay for a company like Opower if it can push competitors out and prove that th its money is going toward rapid expansion and it can dominate the market. And it, it sounds like that's what Opower is going to try to do here with this IPO. So in my conversations with folks, investors may be willing to accept a couple of years of unprofitability if Opower can prove its expansion plans are actually working. Yeah, I think they're really well positioned. I mean, I think they make the case that their growth, that, that they're very conservative in their predictions, and I think that's smart for them to be that way. But boy, they've got a good spot where they are. They've got a great track record. They have a lot of data. They have enough um, information and operational data from utilities to be able to then sell those services far and wide. 
But the question is, what's their bias, right? When you look at Michael Liebrecht at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, that guy was trying to make money from day one, right? I mean, and when and now that he sold to Bloomberg, he also everything he does makes money. Whereas I think that the criticism of Dan and Alex, which you know both of whom I consider friends and think very highly of, um, is it the is it are they really more concerned about the social engineering work that they're doing and the TED talk that they gave, or are they really interested in profitability? And that's the part that I think investors are going to ask real questions around because, you know, they're not Google where they're so profitable that they can do whatever the hell they want to and not worry about investors. Now, you look at how many people they have on the ground doing policy work, and you know they care about profitability because of that. The company is spending more money than anything else on sales and marketing. It spent $30.5 million last year, more than even on R&D, as it tried to roll out its fifth-generation platform. The business of selling into a highly regulated, often calcified environment isn't easy, and Opower showed that its sales cycles can be, quote, long and unpredictable. But I think by putting a lot of money into sales and marketing, it sounds like they really want to re-up their contracts with existing utilities, bring more customers on board, and that's how they're going to get profitable. It's unclear how effective their other programs are, their smart thermostat integration. There are a lot of risks in residential demand response and, and unclear how that's going to factor into their profitability. But with a lot of money in sales and marketing, it, that seems to be a signal that they're going to attempt to be profitable. Well, the other piece that I would say is that just from a broad industry perspective, the fact that Opower is going public means that this sort of um, utility services, clean web, going directly to customers to changing their behavior business model is going to have some legs. And I think you're going to see maybe a hundred other companies that will get angel investment money and venture capital money to do the same thing in different areas, whether it's um, folks like continuous commissioning for buildings or whether it's folks that are figuring out how to do clean uh, energy marketplace type stuff where they're trying to get folks who are interested in really digging deep into their energy to buy more materials like smart thermostats and that kind of stuff. So, so part of what an IPO like this signals to the marketplace is that there's an entire burgeoning industry sector forming. What I really like about Opower's strategy and the reason why it's considered a successful company is because it did one thing and one thing really, really well. Hooked utility customers into that and then started incrementally expanding its platform. And you know, many years later, it is now becoming an entirely different company than it started out as. And you have all these behavioral efficiency, intelligent efficiency companies coming in, trying to develop far too many products. And in my conversations with other companies, either in the commercial industrial space or in the residential space, they're taking lessons from Opower and realizing themselves through experience that they really need to find the one thing they're good at, get reoccurring revenues, and build off of that and not just say, yep, we're a big data provider and you can do all these nifty things because that doesn't work. And Opower proved how to make it work. Yeah. And I'm actually psyched to see some competitors uh, for them. I think that would be good for them. Finally, just one point here in our conversations with some investors. So you look at the S1, Lasky and Yates own about 17.4% and 22.4% of the company respectively. So the founders 
together own 40% of the company after a number of venture rounds. And as one investor uh, said to my colleague, Eric Wessoff, it speaks to the team's phenomenal job at executing because they made really good progress after their first raise, which commanded a great price in their series B round. And that execution from Dan Yates and Alex Lasky is going to pay off very nicely for them when the company goes public. Well, this is what you can get out of the clean web. I mean, I think in general, most people's rule of thumb is that the founder um, ends up with five to seven percent of the company um, after all the successive rounds. And I think that um, for these guys to have so much of the company, I think shows you the power of well their own execution, which I completely agree, but also the power of the clean web. All right, let's move on to our last topic, and it is probably the most dramatic one we have ever covered. That's right, House of Cards. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I'm about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. One heartbeat away from the presidency, not a single vote cast in my name. Democracy is so overrated. If you were like most Americans, you spent Valentine's Day weekend watching Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright backstab their way to the top of the food chain in Washington. Of course, House of Cards couldn't be further from the reality of politics in D.C., but it sure is a deliciously narcissistic treat for those of us who live here. And uh, given its popularity, the rest of America enjoys it just as much. So the gang was pleasantly surprised when, in season two... The writers decided to take on energy, and that's what we're going to chat about today, using that episode as a way to talk about rare earth mineral, uh, rare earth materials. Big warning here for our listeners. This segment is probably going to contain some spoilers about episode six. We'll do our best not to give away details and ruin the show, but inevitably there are going to be some. So if you're one of those people who can't stand even the slightest details unveiled, you might want to fast forward ahead, but it's going to be a good discussion. So, you know, if you can handle a few, then I'd recommend listening. And just a quick recap before we start. So this episode was called The Energy Crisis. In this show, the billionaire Raymond Tusk with ties to the White House is in this war with Frank Underwood. Kevin Spacey's character, who's now VP. Uh, Tusk, who happens to own a bunch of nuclear plants, is trying to to help kill a trade war with the Chinese for business reasons, his own business reasons. The Chinese are holding on to their supply of samarium as collateral, and samarium is used in fuel rods for nuclear plants. And Tusk says that a short supply of samarium is going to force him to shut down his plants and drive up energy prices. But Underwood's ready to brawl, so he proposes circumventing the Chinese and finding a new supply of samarium, which angers Tusk and forces him to shut down nuclear plants prematurely, and that causes headaches for the president. Okay, that's all we're going to give away. It's just an overview of kind of what happens. There's plenty more juicy stuff that we won't talk about. But the question is whether this is grounded in reality. Catherine, what are your thoughts on this specific scenario? Ah, well, the first thing I did uh, was I called my friends at the Nuclear Energy Institute, and they first had to find somebody who knew a lot about nuclear energy and had watched this episode of House of Cards, which we found somebody, and he was wonderful. And I said, how many ways is this wrong? And he said, first of all, we don't care anything about samarium. I don't know what that is. He said, we care about uranium. <laughs> and we have 100 years of uranium, and it's coming from nice countries like Canada. So, you know, there was this issue of that is not a real issue, is this samarium. 
thing. He also said the whole issue about, you know, the plants are going to become overloaded. He said, no, nuclear power is designed to run at full power. That's when the plants are the happiest. Um, he said during Superstorm Sandy, 30 nuclear plants shut down as designed. They needed to shut down during that storm, and they came up pretty quickly. The grid is super sophisticated. Um, I know this just from, you know, having lived through the 2003 blackout when the tree in Cleveland brought down part, most of the Northeast, and I was in my cabin in the mountains where we always get outages. Um, but what happened was the grid functioned the way it was supposed to, and that New England was able to isolate itself. I mean, the, the, and the electric grid has progressed a lot since then. That would even never happen today. We have so much more information on the grid. We backfeed from lots and lots of different resources. So what happened on the grid in that episode would also not occur in real life. Um, and just the nuclear industry was that these guys are really funny. He said, it makes it sound like the industry is flush with cash. He said, that is not a problem for us right now. As you know, we're having a lot of troubles. So, I mean, they seem to think that this, you know, they were delighted that uh, there was, there was a focus on nuclear energy. Um, but of course they thought it was misplaced and, and in great error. And the, the irony of all of this is that rare earths, and critical energy materials and precious metals are much more prevalent in renewable energy resources like wind turbine magnets and solar substrates and catalytic converters. So it, what was ironic was the show was focused on nuclear when the reality is it could have been focused instead on renewables. Jigger, were you rolling your eyes as much as we were? Well, you know, not really. I have to say, I mean, I do think this is a real thing. And, and it's one of those things where we we take for granted how much integration work there is between uranium and thorium folks, et cetera. Remember, the U.S. government owned the company that actually found uranium, et cetera, and then spun that company out as a private sector company about 20 years ago. Um, today in the U.S., for instance, First Solar runs a tellurium mine in Mexico to make sure that they have consistent supply of tellurium. Um, you know, lithium is another sort of, you know, element that folks are worried about as batteries become far more prevalent uh, for electric cars. And so I do think that the, the Department of Defense and the U.S. government will start to get more interested in where these um, precious sort of rare earths are coming from um, as our industry grows. I can't speak for the impact in the defense sector, but I was talking to a critical materials expert this morning before this show and just asked her a realistic scenario for uh, materials supply shortages. And she pointed to the the issue in 2011 when we saw a neodymium and dysposium price spike and uh, prices went up 20 to 25 times. And what it did was impact the choices that manufacturers and therefore developers were making. So that impacted the installation of permanent magnet generators uh, for wind turbines. It limited the size of wind turbines that could be installed. And so it had a supply chain effect for a number of years down the road. But it wasn't a crisis where you started to have to shut down wind turbines or or other generator units that used magnets. And so the acute impact that we're talking about in House of Cards is completely blown out, blown out of proportion. But this impact that we're talking about does have consequences for the choices that manufacturers make. It impacts how many batteries we have, how many permanent magnet generators we can develop, uh, and a variety of other products that go into energy products themselves. Yeah, and Stephen, what you're talking about are the resources themselves. And 
one thing that this country does not have is any facility that actually recycles critical materials. There are six companies all over the world that do this. Uh, in fact, I work with one of them. My, my firm works with Umacore, which is headquartered in Brussels. Um, and they they recycle, I think, 27 different critical energy materials for a wide variety of technologies. If we had policy in this country for electronic waste where we could go and actually recycle all of these critical materials, these precious metals, rare earths, if we had that kind of policy, we would drive that industry, we would retain wealth, we would, we would have to depend much less on mining and, and frankly, on China to supply this. During that 2011 price spike, we did see some manufacturers start to invest in recycling, and they started to circumvent China and look to other countries. And there's a debate brewing about how much mining the U.S. should start to do. And of course, that brings up nimbyism and what kind of mining that people want to see in their backyards. So it's, it's a contentious political issue, both geopolitical and here within the United States, if you know, we need more of these materials. I mean, I, I just think that when you think about where um, volatility has gone for oil prices and natural gas prices and other things, I mean, I do think that, you know, while this particular House of Cards episode was far-fetched, my sense is is that it's not so far-fetched to see the federal government take a deeper role into our industry broadly, the electric utility sector uh, specifically, um, around making sure that we have all these sources of supply as we're moving away from coal. Yes, the scenario was based in some reality, but the acute impact on the energy sector was completely absurd. Still, this is why we're talking about the issue, because critical materials supply is going to be increasingly important as we scale up renewables and the materials they depend on. Um, shifting to another House of Cards topic, Shale Connor, VP of Research, asked us this question, and I wanted to ask it on air. Who do you think the real world Raymond Tusk is? Well, clearly it's the Koch brothers. <laughs> but they don't I mean, necessarily have the ear of the president. But I agree. I think that that's probably the closest thing we have. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you want to talk about ear of the president, you know, you've got on the Democrat side, you obviously have um, folks like Tom Steyer that are trying to take that position. You've got George Soros that's had that position for a while and, you know, others that are, I mean, uh, I was John Podesta, about, but John Podesta doesn't have money. So you can't. You can't. Uh, so he's not. He's not going to buy his love there. But I think. But it's, and then those brothers. I keep forgetting their name of the sugar, the sugar brothers from Cuba. So Alfonso and Jose Fanjul, and one is one of the largest donors to the Republican Party, and the other one's the largest donor to the Democrat Party. The character that I wonder about is. Remy Danton, who is the sole lobbyist, evidently, in Washington, D.C., in the House of Cards. And just know that there's not just one of them. <laughs> so, Catherine, are you and your husband, Dave, plotting the same rise to the top of the Department of Energy? I mean, I can see you as Energy Secretary and your husband as Assistant Secretary. <laughs> no, because they've forbidden lobbyists from having any government positions. So this... this uh, this administration doesn't let lobbyists uh, do very much, and it's Jack Abramoff. And uh, no, we are we are nothing like that. We lobby for we nudge for good. That doesn't sound very House of Cards esque. So you're telling me Washington isn't isn't really like that? Well, let's just say we were not featured in this town. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap up the show and tell our listeners something they don't know. Um, Jigger, what's on your plate this week? Do you have anything surprising? Anything interesting? 
Well, you know, th- there's a really interesting initiative that's going to get launched, uh, I think, this week or next week by Sun Edison and Grid Alternatives, where I think Sun Edison's putting in around $1.2 million um, to help uh, um, promote uh, women uh, in the um, in the solar industry. And so Woo-hoo! I think that- be really cool and i'm glad to see great alternatives actually playing this role as well they've played a huge role in bringing folks from disadvantaged economic classes into the solar installation uh business and so i think it's they're the right people to work on this as well what a great agreement we need more companies like grid alternatives and kudos for sun edison for getting involved in that Catherine, tell us something we don't know what's new and novel on your plate yeah, so I was going to do some wonky thing about the budget and how the president has uh, asked for a billion dollars for a new resilience, grid resilience fund. Um, but it just seemed like, you know, we always talk about, and Congress is going to ignore it anyway, but I would much rather talk about Harry Reid. He's the Senate Majority Leader. If For folks who don't know, he grew up uh, basically like eating dirt in a shack. He was super poor. He was an amateur lightweight boxer. Now, this is a guy who you look at him and you think you could you know, blow him over like a feather. He was a boxer. He was a Capitol police officer. So he actually protected the office that he currently holds. He was a a Nevada gaming commissioner whose character was taken word for word for the movie Casino. So this guy is tough and he has started going after the Koch brothers. He says Republicans are addicted to Coke. And this is great. He is he is jumping up and down and saying, you know, the Koch brothers, and this is only the stuff that's disclosed, have paid, play, you know, spent $14.5 million on Senate races. And what he's trying to do is goose the Democratic donors to do something to fight back. And I think it is really fun to watch. He sounds like he's alone on this, though. I haven't really heard anyone back him up. He doesn't need anybody. He's great. He can go and fight and he can do the street fight and provide cover for a lot of other people. Sounds like Harry Reid needs his Raymond Tusk to funnel more money to battle the Cokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I have an interesting factoid from the Chinese solar producer, Jinko Solar. So in the company's Q4 earnings statement, Jinko announced, one, that it was profitable, and two, that it brought its module production costs down to about $0.48 cents per watt. And Shyam Mehta, our upstream solar analyst, pointed out that this is the first time that any module manufacturer has dipped below the $0.50 cent per watt mark. And a lot of people still hold to this notion that traditional silicon-based solar can't continue to get a lot cheaper. But, you know, with better scale, with automation, uh, reductions in yield losses, costs can continue to be squeezed out. Um, I will say there are some critics here who think that Chinese subsidies are still masking costs at these Chinese firms, but it's a really notable notable milestone in solar manufacturing, and I thought it was worth mentioning. All right, that's all for the show this week. We appreciate you listening in. Hope we didn't spoil too much of the House of Cards episode. If you want to contact us, send me an email. I'm at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. You can also follow each of us on Twitter or send story ideas to us via Twitter at The Energy Gang. Also, for more information on the stories we covered, see the links on the podcast page. While there, subscribe to our RSS feed or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. With that, time to wrap it up. Catherine, fun times this week. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. You too. And Jigger, always a pleasure. I'm going to try to find myself a good cocktail this weekend. All right. How's the mixology going, by the way? Are you mixing new cocktails yourself? You said you were fascinated by it. I haven't gone to the mixology myself yet, but I'm still studying uh, all the mixology that's going on already. 
All right, well, I can see a cocktail in my future this weekend as well. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Thanks for being here. Thank you.